0: What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Imagine meeting the love of your life in your 40s, Then noticing that, about a year in, the sex is pretty lackluster. Do you think you'd go on a quest that involved everything from a completely naked masturbation workshop to writing a one-person play and memoir inspired by the quest? Laura Zam did precisely that and so much more. Today you'll hear about that journey and the sexual healing it helped bring to her life. With Dr. Megan Fleming's help, we'll also weigh in on ways to have your first orgasm or the stronger ones you desire. For accessories to help you get there, please head to thepleasurechest.com to check out the latest and greatest in sex toys and more pleasure products. All month long, they're featuring a special pride collection and free shipping. The Enjoy Pure Wand is awesome for P-spot and G-spot play, especially if you prefer a non-vibrating toy or temperature play. The collection also features a wonderful book that's so important. It's called Trans Bodies, Trans Selves. It was consciously compiled by transgender and genderqueer authors as a resource guide for anyone who wants to learn about the historical health, legal, cultural, and social issues affecting transgender and genderqueer life. So Laura Zam is a playwright, author, speaker, sexuality educator, certified trauma professional, and award-winning solo performer. Her writing appears in the New York Times, Salon, HuffPost, She Knows, international journals, and five book anthologies. Her new book, The Pleasure Plan, One Woman's Search for Sexual Healing, literally started out as a screw journal. We had such a fun conversation. After thanking her for writing The Pleasure Plan, which is funny and enlightening and just delightful, I let her know what I loved most about it. I really appreciate the honesty with which you share about your personal challenges with things like low libido and difficulty with orgasm and pelvic pain that you had very early on starting at age 17. I'm curious what you recall believing about your body and sexuality back then in your late teens. I
1: believed I was broken. well I you know the first time I tried to have sex it it didn't it wasn't possible there was uh, penetration felt blocked it felt like there was something a physical barrier and so actually, what I first thought was that there was something wrong, there was something physically wrong, and I actually did go to see a, a gynecologist, and you read my book, August, and you know that going to the doctor was not <laughs> something that was, um, that was even possible in my family. My my mother didn't believe in the medical community. And, but I found on my own a a doctor and, uh, and yeah, she told me as many people who have this kind of problem were told, and unfortunately still told to just have a glass of wine and to relax. So So after that, I just believed, okay, I'm broken. I was always, um, or from the time I was around that age, I I was speaking openly about the fact that I'd been sexually abused as a child. And so I made the connection in my mind, okay, I had sexual trauma, therefore I'm broken and will always be broken. Mm.
0: That really pulls at my, my heart. I think so many people do relate to that. And the whole idea... That you can just sip some wine, or basically, <laughs> they're saying relax, like just calm down, <laughs> which is so shaming. And then to internalize that because we look to professionals like doctors as you know the experts, and I know they don't actually even learn very much about sex right. or sexuality and training.
1: Yeah, yeah, they don't, and it, it really varies from medical school to medical school. But I've heard anything from just a few hours uh, in a day or sometimes maybe a whole day uh, of sex ed. Of course, it also mat- uh, varies according to what the specialty might be. But even gynecologists are not trained in necessarily in the mechanics of sex, let alone pleasure, and so i think that's really problematic i know from my own experience and that of people that i work with it's it's very problematic because we're going to them to solve sexual problems and they just don't have the information for us
0: it's so true yes so many people are missing that information and then it's very difficult to even feel comfortable bringing it up mm-hmm. You open your book with this really important scene. You're in a therapist's office, and the doctor suggested that maybe you weren't a very sexual person. And you asked the question, can Eros be taught? And the therapist thought you were joking, but you weren't. Would you share what led you to that office to take that step and then and then to that question?
1: Sure. Well, what led me there was a little bit crazy, but it worked. <laughs> so I I didn't know how to heal sexually. I had been in therapy for decades in and out of therapy, but in a great way. I love therapy. I just went back to therapy. I adore therapy, but I never really talked about any of my sexual issues with any of my therapists, and it just never came up. And so when I got married for the first time, At 46, I I wanted to fix my sexuality so that I could have this great relationship, but I just didn't know how. I felt so overwhelmed and so confused because I didn't know if my problems had to do with my sexual abuse, as I had always thought, or if there was something now age-related because I was now right? Entering my late forties. If there was something having to do with marriage, I'd never really had a very successful long-term relationship. Um, I didn't know if it had to do with ignorance with regard to female sexuality, female sexual response. I just didn't know anything. I felt so, um, thwarted really. And, um, and, and overwhelmed. So I, I got a commission to write a one person play and I thought, you know, this is going to be the way that I'm going to heal. And the commission gave me a certain amount of time to write the play. But what it gave me was a process. I had been writing one person plays. I was a a playwright. I have an MFA in playwriting. So I knew that process and I knew a template of creating art. I knew, okay, you can do research and then you could just proceed with your research and then you write about it and then you, you put it up on its feet. I, I knew what that was in my bones and I thought, oh, I'm going to take my sexual healing and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically plop it into this template using this play commission. And so one of the people that I put on the list was a hypnotist. Um, because I heard that hypnotists could help with vaginismus, one of the problems that I was having. And I wanted to really um, explore new ways of of looking at this. And uh, anyway, that's what brought me to this woman who was also a cognitive behavioral therapist and a marriage and family therapist. So I thought she had a lot to offer me.
0: And then to have that question land in such a way, can Eros be taught to be that's a really wonderful question. It's one that I think more of us could be asking if maybe we had the courage. I think a lot of people would feel like that could be a courageous question because it, it suggests that you're struggling in that area and people have a hard time talking about that. How did it feel to... Did it feel like it was dismissive? Um, obviously, you'd had experience with, with doctors and, and professionals not having the understanding.
1: Yeah, I think that... Um, I, I love your question so much about that question because I I now I'm thinking well I don't think I've ever answered can arrows be taught and did I did I learn arrows through this process and I have to say I did um but to get to the other part of your comment, yeah, she was very dismissive. Um, she was dismissive of my sexual abuse having any impact on my present rela- uh, present circumstances. She was dismissive of my desire to become a desirous person. But I love this idea about, um, yeah, I think eros can be taught, actually, because I think that change is, act- is only learning. Right? Isn't that what learning is? And so, right, we're, re, we're rewiring our brains. That's how we learn, and that's how we change. And so, I rewired my brain for arrows. So I, I taught.
0: I, I, uh, yeah, arrows can be taught. <laughs> you demonstrate it so well because you take readers on this adventure of your of your life and this journey that you're on, and you have really incredible adventures. Some very Um, eye-opening and empowering experiences. There are some very funny experiences and moments. Could we talk about your Betty Dodson experience? I really love her. Yes. Um, Have you seen Betty? Yes. I'm familiar with her work. I got to interview her for my book briefly, and I love her thoughts on masturbation and the openness that she brings to this field—that's so important—that she has for decades. I really could feel as you were meeting her, and walking into her space. Would you share a bit about that—that that feeling walking in? Because you walked into her apartment.
1: Yes, her apartment in Midtown Manhattan. She has this immaculate apartment, that's uh, that she's been there, and she's been there for decades and decades. Uh, I was just terrified. Um, I had done a lot of work up until that point. I mean, a lot of sexual healing. It comes rather late in the book when I, I go to see her, but I was dying to, to do this body sex workshop, but I, there's a lot of videos on her website that show you exactly what's going to go on. I didn't watch any of them cause I didn't want to freak myself out. Um, you walk in, Betty's really gruff as you know, and, uh, But I'm from Brooklyn, and she reminded me. I put this in my book. She reminded me of cab drivers that I, you know, that were like the blue collar people I worked, I grew up with in Brooklyn, even though she comes from the Midwest. It's not her background, but she's got that vibe a little bit. She's like, Yeah, take off your clothes, (laughs) hang them up. And so I'm like, Ah! But the next moment was really transformative and terrifying in a whole new way because I walk into the living room, and there are all these backjack chairs. And there are just a handful at that point, a handful of women who are arranged in a circle and everybody's naked. And I'm naked. And everything that could possibly come up in terms of body insecurity comes up, right? Oh, okay. How do I sit? What do I, what do I do? I look at people in the eye. Do I make a point of not looking at people in, in a way that they're gonna think I'm looking at their boobs or lower? Anyway, it was, uh, it was very terrifying, and then it becomes normalized quickly. It's the weirdest thing. Weirdest. Weirdest thing by the end of that day, you're, you've shown your vulva to this whole group of women who've scooted on in close. Um, Betty gives your vulva a name and everybody is, you know, kind of agrees, you know, nods their head. Yep. Um, and on day two, we masturbate, you know, we do this kind of female circle jerk. It's not really that I make a joke about it. And that was, it was very, very healing. It wasn't clinical and it was, but it wasn't not clinical, (laughs) and it wasn't uh, erotic, but it was also a little erotic. It was just an educational experience that included eroticism, that didn't shy away from it, and I think that's why her work is so, so, so important, because she's not just talking about things in the abstract. She's giving you hands-on tools, and you're doing it on mass in front of her, where you can ask questions, and I found that I really needed that degree of sex education. I I, I guess I was so clueless, <laughs> perhaps. But I think many many people need um, need extensive extensive sex education, as you know more than anyone, August. I mean that's you know huge part of this right this whole endeavor for you. Um, but, But
0: anyway, I I just, uh, I was so changed by that experience. One of the parts that I highlighted in that section, you wrote, in a flash for the first time, I understand why I can't climax with Kurt or any man before him. I've only been getting chubbies. And then you add, Betty's technique is specifically designed to circumvent chubbies, which I know your husband calls a partial erection, essentially, by covering more landscape. That is, I think, such an important point and I actually just this last week received a question by email from somebody who is a cisgender woman, and she's never experienced an orgasm. And that piece, the discovery, and the the realizing that you didn't learn these things like a lot of us don't know a lot about our landscape.
1: Right. I mean, that is what a girl boner is. You know, from this from 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 a certain perspective, it's a it's an erection, and we. Have the ability to have a full erection, but we also might sometimes, many many times, I think, especially for for cis hetero women, have a partial erection, and we don't even know that we're having a partial girl boner because we um, because we don't have a gauge for it. We don't understand enough about our our apparatus our pleasure apparatus our erectile tissue apparatus to understand that there there is a greater erection out there for us and that pleasure ultimate pleasure is going to be dependent on that as well as comfort during penetration um oftentimes there can be pain because there's just not enough arousal and that can easily happen if we're if we feel like we're having to rush things, right, rush our, our pleasure, our arousal, so that we can get to what's seen as the main event, right, or, you know, do the fore, the foreplay thing, which of course doesn't make sense, right, so that we can get to this main event. That's really a, a setup, I think, for, for many, many people with vulvas and vaginas, that we we just get used to having this partial erection, and um, and don't know our own capacity for pleasure because of that.
0: Absolutely. And learning, as I know you did from Betty, that if you have a vulva, you actually have more erectile tissue than a cisgender man. And it, it kind of makes sense. It would take more time to arouse more of the tissue, but then also to maybe relax into it. Especially if you've been struggling with orgasm, you're bringing in perhaps some anxiety or feeling distracted. Am I going to come? Is it going to happen soon enough? Mm -hmm. What are some of the tips that you would provide somebody who is in that place?
1: Well, I recommend for everyone that they have a pleasure hour. So regardless of whether or not you're having issues, what your gender is, I think that everyone could benefit from an hour a week of Yeah, of pleasure. And I think for people particularly who have sexual problems, issues, I think of this pleasure hours being a time for recovery and discovery. And I think the recovery piece is is big and ongoing. I think that uh, another one of your podcast guests had talked about something called uh, trauma management, I think and uh, i just love that term i thought that was so brilliant and this idea that right that recovery is something that's ongoing the rewiring actually is ongoing that's what i guess i'm i'm, I'm getting at here and that Teaching ourselves Eros, staying connected to Eros is an ongoing endeavor because if you have had trauma or other kinds of issues, the other wiring is just kind of hanging out in the wings. (laughs) It's like growing up in a dysfunctional home, you know it's it's just it's right there, you know you, you walk through the front door of your parents' house and you'll you'll slip right back into it right or or something will happen um, that's similar to something from your childhood, and you'll go right back there, even though you've done decades and decades of work right to free yourself of those patterns. So I like to think of the pleasure hour as a time to to work on our wiring, uh, our sexy wiring and our recovery, our healing wiring and maintenance and so yeah recovery to just recognize what those old patterns are and what the new patterns are right the having a practice to um to balance them out antidotes let's say and then discovery finding out and continuing to find out what do i like
0: what uh, what would i like to try what's exciting to me right now i love that advice the really prioritizing pleasure and setting time in your schedule for it the same way you would prioritize anything else that's important and the self-discovery that could come from that. You reminded me of a part of your book that I really relate to and I haven't heard anyone else really talk about, that your appendix burst and you essentially ignored that pain of the infection for days. And that really struck me because I went through that same thing I was like, oh, I think I'm a little depressed or, you know, I was just sort of chalking it up to not a big deal. And this was before I had some very major epiphanies in my sexual self-discovery and my whole relationship to my body has changed since really stepping into and um, focusing on and prioritizing my own sexuality. And I thought that was really fascinating because it shows this This disconnect that I think is really common and impacts so many areas of our lives. I wondered if you could speak a bit to that, that sort of disconnect, because it, it feels to me like there's a big connection between having maybe it's shame or some kind of disconnect in our, in our own sexuality from the damaging messages, uh, lack of education, all of these things we're talking about and, and really respecting our bodies. Yeah, and uh, that process of—I mean—the whole sexual healing
1: process just taught me so much about respecting, as you say, and respect really comes down to listening. I think it's a, a kind of deep listening. My husband and I have been—we've been listening to a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh, this uh, Vietnamese monk, Buddhist monk, and he talks about deep listening, and and but he he talks about in this very specific way, like he said, to be really present and to really, really listen is analogous to saying, I'm here. I see you, darling. I'm here. I'm right here. And I I see you and I, I hear you. And, you know, I'm really, 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 really present. And I think that it's very difficult for so many people to do that with our own flesh. I'm I'm here for you pain on the, on the right side. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. What are you, what are you trying to tell me? What is it that you're trying to tell me? Um, along these lines, I had this really huge revelation in, in my therapy just a couple of weeks ago, actually. So it's in my book. I, I have this kind of lifelong phobia around getting breast cancer and, and it just—it's like nothing worked around, you know. Just nothing worked. I just would get a panic. I finally started getting regular mammograms, and you know, so I, at least I'm—I'm I'm clear there in terms of my my breast health. And um, but it's still—it's such an episode. I'm—I'm there, I'm you know. I'm really cautious about taking drugs, but I make my primary care physician, give me one Xanax to, to go for this um, mammogram. Cause it's just so, it's so incredibly traumatizing for me anyway. So in my therapy, we were talking about it and, uh, and realized that it was actually a lot of the terror around my breasts is connected to my sexual abuse in a way that I never, ever, ever saw after all this work. And because I didn't see it because I never really approached my trauma, um, just from the body, like just start at the body, respecting, listening, what are you trying to tell me? And then take that and then, uh, you know, develop an understanding of strategies and also an understanding of, ah, I see, this is what's going on. And, um, you know, the, all, a lot of the problems that I had as well, vaginismus, this muscle spasm, overly tight and weak pelvic floor muscles is also, I call it in the book, PTSD of the vagina. It is a form of PTSD, but it's not really quite recognized yet because we're not yet used to looking at a way of looking at trauma that is about respecting the body and respecting how the body has been impacted by the trauma, and that it may not, it may not uh, conform, let's say, to um, maybe traditional notions of p- post-traumatic stress and how that manifests, or right, or other responses to um, to trauma or other kinds of you know events. So I think this listening has a lot, a lot of. Um, importance for us, but also it's something I think could hopefully change the professions, helping professions, medical profession, and behavioral health professions.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. That really resonated with me, and I'm sure it will. with Most of us have gone through something traumatic, and you mentioned earlier that managing trauma versus Trying to just heal and move past it, and there's this finish line. That was Jamila Dawson, I believe, was the therapist, and she's really brilliant about about that topic. I've learned a lot from her. And and in my own experience, it was so foreign to me that the body, like that, you you feel trauma in your body. That when my therapist would ask me, "Where are you feeling it in your body?" I felt like I didn't have a body. I mean, it was it was to the point of seeming kind of funny to me, although that's actually quite sad. Um, but the the transition and the growth that can happen when you start to respect that the body does hold on to trauma and knowing that can help you start to process and have compassion for yourself. And, and as you mentioned, for, for your pelvic region, anyone who's gone through sexual trauma, knowing we bring everything into the bedroom and into sex, the the good, the difficult, and and to have that grace and compassion for yourself, that if it's challenging, that there can be so many reasons. What would you share, what would you like to share about your own process of managing trauma, specifically related to sexual trauma and as you mentioned vaginismus, What what helped you the most?
1: Yeah, so what helped me the most was to foremost to get a great diagnosis, to be able to understand all the different problems that I have and uh, that I had, and some of them are ongoing. And to be able to parse those out and understand that each of them needs something else. Each of them has a, a, a its own particular kind of uh, antidote. And it could be... Um, Kind of interwoven um, how I might deal with these different issues. For instance, I have um, age related, I have atrophy, or now they're calling it GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So I have, you know, um, I'm on estrogen to help deal with these kind of ravages, you know, to the, the vagina and also the changes to the vulva because of low estrogen and uh, and also to low testosterone. So, um, you know, so that's one thing. But But then interrelated, the vaginismus is something that I, quote unquote, cured. But any time there's any uh, pain, the vaginismus will kick in because the muscles get tight. Basically, the vagina says, no, Okay, I'm going on shut down. I don't like this. So, um, so you know, so there are different things, different kinds of remedies, but uh, so getting a good diagnosis definitely was um, something that I would recommend for, for others to find out what's going on. And that also includes psychologically to find a good th- sex therapist or a great therapist who is really knowledgeable and comfortable talking about sex because not every provider, both from the medical field and from the mental health field has um, sufficient knowledge, and so I think we really need to find the right person and sometimes a team. More and more so, um, doctors and mental health people are working in teams with other other providers. Get a great diagnosis, number one. Number two, to uh, be able to get that that sex information, that pleasure information, I think is. Really, really critical and a, a critical piece in terms of healing, I believe. And so, I think that it's so lacking for for most of us. And so, I, I have never met a person who was like good that had enough sex ed. <laughs> so, I think um, getting that getting that sex ed, and then maybe just apropos to our conversation, August, maybe you know, just adding that part to to think of it this way, that if there were another part of your body that had been harmed, let's say that when you were young, you were in an accident and your knee were, was damaged. Um, you might have psychological and emotional issues that are related to that accident, but you might also have issues with your knee. And I think we're, we're missing that part. These are the body part absorb the the trauma itself it was damaged and i think that um applying whatever that is that healing to that area particularly finding out what it needs i think is is a often a missing piece but a critical piece in terms of someone's recovery and wellness
0: absolutely yes yes i know you tried many different approaches to sexual healing and because i know that different things work for different people. And there, there are so many methodologies that people aren't aware of. I wonder if, I know you can't probably speak to all 30 of, of the ones that you've tried, but could you just name a handful of them that you feel are perhaps under-recognized uh, that someone listening might benefit from? Absolutely, and I'm actually
1: I'm consulting the back of my book because I list them all, <laughs> so I don't I don't forget something. Uh, I think sex therapy. I mentioned it a moment ago, and I think people do know it about it, but I think there's a lot of fear around it and maybe um, misconceptions. For me, there was. I was terrified to contact a sex therapist. So I think that just understanding that a sex therapist is a regular old therapist who just has special uh, training, special certification in human sexuality and very broad training and very comprehensive, rigorous training is uh, is something that I think is, is under-recognized. I think that another... Um, another remedy that is under recognized is you mentioned emdr i think emdr is really great and i think not enough people perhaps know about it and i think that that's something that um that can be really helpful for a lot of a lot of people i think that um i put it in my book i put it under the rubric of public speaking but i think Talking openly about our own um, sexual journey is, to me, a very, very important part of this process, because we often blame ourselves for not just what happened, but how it affected us, and I think that being able to to claim that and say, yes, this, this happened to me, and this is the result is a form of, uh, or is a process of moving past shame. And shame is really, really insidious. And so I think just speaking up about what happened, and again, what the effects were, is really, really going to be important. And then one last thing that I'll mention is, um, is some people call it sexological body work, and it's hands-on basically sex education or sexual healing. I went to see a a tantra, a tantrika who, um, is not technically a a sexological body worker, but it's just this umbrella where you might have some sort of, um, hands-on session. And there are, um, we can share resources, places you could go, um, that are very, very reputable. And, um, if, if you feel like you need some sort of hands-on healing. And I felt like I did because, because hands had harmed me and I felt like I needed hands to heal me.
0: Hmm. Beautifully said. I really appreciate that. I know that people can learn a lot about your evolution and personal growth through your book, and I hope they will. I'm curious if you can share a bit about your life now and where you are in your sexuality and your sense of self from that time where you were in that therapist's office wondering about the teaching abilities of Eros?
1: Yeah, I, I had no idea where this would lead me. And I'm so shocked, really, that it, it, it created a kind of fearlessness I'm really, really shocked by it, but so pleased, obviously. I think it's about shame. And I think that maybe you could identify with this. When you start to talk openly about these things, it's like this line that you have to cross over in order to have these conversations. And I felt that in crossing over that line, I left behind a part of myself that was, um, That was ashamed about just my body, who I was, ashamed of my, um, the effects, how this all had affected me, um, ashamed to speak up, ashamed of my voice. I didn't realize that I even had any of that shame, but once I, (laughs) I crossed over the line, which was just a simple thing, you know, because it was a project where I was doing initially that one person play. So it just started with me having casual conversations with people. Oh, you're a writer. what are you working on? Oh, okay. Uh, What am I working on? Well, I'm working on a a play about overcoming my childhood sexual abuse and reclaiming my sexuality. Hi, what's your name? (laughs) It just, um, it just, it changed my life in so many ways because I, I, all of a sudden I was yeah, I crossed over this line and just literally felt like a different person because of it. And um and then it changed my sex life in uh, incredible ways because the whole project was about adventure and experimentation. Okay, I'm trying this, we're trying this as a couple. And it put in my head, "Oh, okay, this can continue forever. Every single time I make love, every single time we make love as a couple, it could be this adventure. It could be, okay, what are we going to try? Uh, are we going to plan it in advance? Are we going to improvise? Are we going to decide on something and then build around that? It became this uh, this something that was so exciting for me as a as a – a sexual being. Um, but as a creative person, as a curious person, as a person who wanted, who wants to be, um, in a healing relationship with my body, I want to be present. It just, it gave me everything to, to think of my sex life in that way. And, um, and I think ultimately it gave me power because now I was, invested, or I, I was felt entitled, you know, I felt entitled to my own pleasure. And so I could advocate for it. And I could make suggestions based on that.
0: That is incredible. It made me think of another phrase in your book, which speaks to power of another kind, a sort of healing anger. I think it was after you had attended a sex brunch and you wrote, I refuse to be trapped by a need to make men bleed. Then it comes to me more possibility than conclusion. Whatever resentment I have toward Kurt and father and patriarchy, why can't I roll it into a goal? Why can't I fight my own way, turn fuck you into fuck me the way I like it?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of... Um... You know, my anger is there. It's, it's, of course it's there, but it, it, it comes out in this way. My anger is my, my activism towards sex education, getting the word out. Uh, it drives me. And it's also my anger is there in terms of saying, well, damn it, I'm going to have a great experience too. And, um, that was really revelatory for me to realize I didn't have to be angry in a prescribed way. I could, um, I could find my own way through this, my own I could find my own way to be a feminist, I guess.
0: Yes, yes, I love that transformation so much, the reclaiming of that power and the the shift of the lens there is is so big. What advice would you share for listeners who are having trouble prioritizing pleasure in their lives of any kind right now, just feeling um feeling like it's a challenge. What's a tip you can leave us with?
1: Well, I think that um I like to think about pleasure as something that is really related to being present. Right. And I think that, um, a lot of people do different kinds of mindfulness meditations where they might cycle through the senses. Right. So you, right. You just, you go, you know, what am I seeing right now? What am I hearing? What am I tasting? So I think that there's, um, there's kind of degrees of, um, of, uh, delight, let's say degrees of delight. So one of those, um, degrees of delight is, uh, is noticing, but I think that when we enter the pleasure realm, we bump up our degree of delight and we add enhancement. So I think that for someone who is struggling, they can just start in that really tiny place, Right. Notice so that you can ground yourself in the senses. What am I tasting right now, right? Let's say I had a sip of coffee, you know, a half hour ago. What am I tasting? Ah, it's still on my taste buds. But then I can enhance it. I could say, ah, what would be really amazing to be drinking right now? And then to, right, to go ahead and to give yourself that experience of pleasure, that deliberate, powerful, right, empowered experience of, okay, now I'm going to intentionally delight myself, give myself pleasure, and I'm going to, right, kind of melt into the the sense of, of being, the sense of, of mindfulness or or pleasure or presence in the middle of that. So I think to start there and then, in terms of moving this into a more erotic zone, I think for that, let's say somebody does decide to, to do this pleasure hour or, or a solo play, however you wanna think about this, maybe starting with the senses, starting with that, and then seeing if that enhancement, that pleasure enhancement might, um, you know, kind of trickle down, so to speak. Because often when we allow ourselves to feel pleasure, Often there is a little tingle, you know, in, those, um, in those, those erogenous areas because we are wired for pleasure and it's all so interrelated, interconnected, like a kiss, right? something that's happening in the mouth, but of course, you know, we know it can right, really have great resonance in other parts of the body. So, um, so
0: that would, I think, be my advice. Thanks again, Laura. Learn more about her work at laurazam.com and find her book, The Pleasure Plan, One Woman's Search for Sexual Healing. Most anywhere books are sold. As I mentioned in our chat, I received an email from a listener of another podcast, actually, that I appeared on recently, Confidently Insecure with Kelsey Derig. Both Kelsey and that show are awesome. The listener, who we will call Eva, said she doesn't think she's ever had an orgasm, only a minimum level of sexual pleasure. And she added this, If I'm not orgasming, is there something wrong with me? Are there other people out there with this issue? Is it common? How can I work on this? I would like to be able to orgasm. To her knowledge, she said, she doesn't have a medical condition that could interfere. Although she does live with anxiety and depression, she sees a therapist and takes a prescribed antidepressant responsibly. She also mentioned that she's had two sexual partners and only recently started to build confidence with masturbating. And she described the issue as really debilitating for her as a sexual being. Eva, I promise you there is nothing wrong with you. Various studies show that some 10% of cisgender women struggle in the orgasm department for all sorts of reasons, wonky societal messages, lack of sex ed, and more. So I would really give yourself a ton of grace and kudos too, because Looking into these questions and sharing it with us here really shows courage and strength. You absolutely deserve all of the pleasure you hope for. And I know you're pretty early in your journey. You mentioned you are about 21 years old. I have a feeling there's a lot of discovery ahead for you. So a few thoughts I have that I wanted to share in addition to what Laura shared. If I were you, I would really take time to explore your body through solo play. Some of us experience the most orgasmic pleasure internally, some of us more on the outside. I personally find external stimulation to be a lot milder than G-spot or internal clitoral play. We're also different. Try different techniques too and explore different places on your body as well as sex toys. I'm not sure if you've tried those. To help you out with that, you might also find the female orgasm class from Beducated Helpful. And I took the class and loved it. It has engaging tutorials where you can actually see real people performing different techniques in this educational way that is so encouraging. Also, it's not uncommon for SSRI medications to have sexual side effects, so While it seems that other factors could completely be the full issue here, I don't think it would hurt to talk to your prescribing doctor about them if you were taking the medication when you noticed these issues. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com wanted you to know about the mental and emotional parts of difficulty reaching orgasm, which, by the way, are also super common. I find that when
2: people are struggling to have an orgasm or haven't had one, there's sort of this pressure around it. And at this point in time, there's frustration. And, you know, clients over the years have come to me sort of saying, is something wrong with me in a sense, not quote unquote, feeling normal. So a great book and resource is Emily Nagoski's Come As You Are, because it certainly says no matter where we are in this moment, we're 100% normal. And one of the things I'd invite you to consider is I sort of say, you know, the uh, cartoon bubble above or the dialogue box above your head, if you were to look at your inner thoughts, chances are, it's something like, oh my god, it's taking too long. I'm not feeling anything. Nothing's going to happen. There's like all this frustration, tension, and like, what's the point? And unfortunately, there's nothing sexy about that inner dialogue. In fact, you're inhibiting your own arousal. One of the things Emily, I, I refer to often is like turn ons and turn offs. Emily refers to sort of we have um, accelerators, our turn ons, and our brakes, uh, our inhibitions, and so inhibitors. I see mean, and so it's really I think important to create the right conditions to sort of see what can emerge from that place. So again, knowing that arousal is both physical and mental on the physical side, are you tuning into sensation? You might like direct or indirect clitoral stimulation. You might like a little or no pressure. Um, you might like your nipples to sort of be caressed or pinched or treat at the same time. Again, use your roaming hands. And this is about building pleasure in your body. And then mentally, where are you? Are you in the moment and the sensation? Are you, again, either on your own or with a partner Um, focusing on some aspect of the sensation, the smells in the room, uh, the feeling of maybe silk against your skin, whatever it might be that is part of your turn-on. And then the mental piece also can be, what about flipping into a fantasy? Sort of, you know, those are sort of those scenes that are your sort of optimal turn-ons and really just sort of playing with the combination of noticing both physical and mental turn-ons. And as I said, getting back to the basics, it's about pleasure and pleasure discovery, because we certainly know that stress is the number one killer of libido. And that stress and anxiety absolutely hijack us from our arousal and what's possible and the reflex, which is orgasm. So I hope you're hearing a lot in this episode of the many different things you can try and what other people have what other women have tried. And the biggest thing I want to leave you with is if it hasn't happened yet, again, keep looking and exploring. Another great resource is Oh My God, Yes. Um, it is based on research from the Kinsey Institute of over a thousand women. And there are different techniques. So everything from uh, rhythm to edging um, intervals, you name it. So. The thing is, I always say we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. So definitely invest in exploring things you may not have tried. But again, from that place of curiosity, pleasure seeking, not from expectation, not from a sense of goal. In fact, I almost give yourself the permission to say it's not going to happen. Take the pressure, take the goal completely off the table and say, you know what? In this moment, I am absolutely not going to have an orgasm. So again, you can invest all your attention, energy, and effort into what really feels good in your body. And we'll see what can emerge from there. So as always, would love to hear how it goes.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. Eva, if you or anyone else listening are looking for more pleasure in your life, I highly recommend her seven-day pleasure challenge, which is free. Find the link down in the show notes. And Eva, if you try these tips and are still struggling or just really desire more support, I would absolutely recommend reaching out to a qualified sex coach, or sex therapist. Thank you so much for your question. We are all wishing you the very best. If you have a question you would like answered on the show, please hit me up through the link down in the show notes. I also want to share a special thank you with Shan Burton, who helped me prepare for this episode. If you're looking for virtual assistant support, I highly recommend her work. Learn more at timeinyourpocket.com. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I would so appreciate it if you would subscribe, subscribe, Leave a rating or review and let your friends know about the show. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazzal, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org, and more about PERIOD at periodnetwork.com.